the Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Hey, listeners. Before we get started with today's episode, we wanted to give you a heads up about some minor sound issues. We had a few difficulties with our guest's microphone, so at times you might hear a slight clicking sound when she speaks. Don't worry, it's not your headphones. The sound is only sporadic, and we couldn't bring ourselves to scrap this really important conversation. So stick with us to the end. As always, we appreciate your listening. Welcome back to another episode of Hotel Bar Sessions. I'm Jason Reed, and as usual, I'm joined by my co-hosts, Rick Lee and Lee Johnson. And this week, we are discussing trans philosophy with special guest Talia Mae Betcher. Before we get to that, let's get our drink orders and our rants and raves. So, Rick, what are you having and what are you ranting or raving about? So I'm going to have a left-hand stout, and I actually don't know whether this is a rant or rave, but after a recent conversation we've had on the podcast, I started watching Naked Attraction, and (laughs) I can't stop watching it. I just want to say two things that are funny to me. One is that genitalia become so boring so quickly that it's amazing. (laughs) It's true. But the second thing is every contestant says they came on the show because they feel like when they see someone naked, they see the real them. And then the next thing they say is like, but the real you has an ugly dick. (laughs) I'm just sort of fascinated by what the hell is going on with this entire show. I have to keep doing more research. (laughs) So Lee, what are you having and what are you ranting or raving about? Well, I'm actually going to have a hot cinnamon tea today. Mm. It's finally gotten a little bit fallish outside and I'm going to try to encourage more fall weather by drinking a fall drink. (laughs) And today I I am ranting, I think, about millennials. I know that comes as a surprise to everybody here, but (laughs) it's actually not my rant. I saw this guy on TikTok who is very funny. I'll put a link to the TikTok in the show notes. But he basically does these sort of reviews of generations. And one of the things that he said about millennials, which I actually think is a pretty good assessment, is that millennials are too afraid to actually change all of the messed up things in the world. And so what they do is just try to make a more inclusive and intersectional version of the same (laughs) fucked up world that they live in. And so, sorry millennials, but seems like that kind of hits the spot. So today we're really lucky to be joined by our special guest, Talia Mae Becher, who is a performance artist, activist, and philosopher at California State University, Los Angeles. Her research focuses on trans philosophy, feminist philosophy, decolonial philosophy, early modern philosophy, that's for you, Rick, and the philosophy of self. So Talia, welcome to Hotel Bar Sessions. What are you drinking and what are you ranting or raving about? Thanks for inviting me. I'm going to have an Arnold Palmer. Mm. Nice. And here's my rant. The way time is set up doesn't allow any time at all for any kind of sustained reflection. I know this sounds weird. We're all philosophers here. And recently I had the chance to put everything down 
because I was working towards the deadline. And for the first time in maybe 20 years, I just let it go. Mm. And I just philosophized and had the capacity for sustained thought. Nice. And that was such a fun experience. But it made me see that it's just a setup that we don't get that. I mean, not only is it we just don't have time, but the way that time works and what we're expected to do in it is to multitask. The one thing that we can't do is have a sustained focus on anything. Sing it. Jason, what about you? What are you drinking and what are you ranting or raving about? I'm going to have a shipyard pumpkin head. I tend to always drink local, and I kind of forget that Shipyard is (laughs) local, even though I used to walk by their brewery almost every day. And I am going to rave about Out There Screaming, edited by Jordan Peele. Rave? Wait, you're raving? Yes, I'm raving. Okay. Oh, sorry, sorry. I thought you said Jordan Peterson. I did not. Sorry, sorry. My bad. Sorry for interrupting. You know, it's funny because I think of the fact that we live between a pair of Jordans. Two very opposed kind of public intellectuals, Jordan Peele and Jordan Peterson, who couldn't be more opposed, even in terms of whether that one is actually an intellectual. And it's not the one who wears tweedy suits that's the actual intellectual, in my view of things. (laughs) So Jordan Peele has edited a volume of what is called Contemporary Black Horror, and they're really good, scary stories. But I also really love the fact that Jordan Peele did this. I think he's really embraced... You know, with his films, as we talked about in a previous episode this season, using horror as a political and sort of social mode of inquiry. And then he's put together this book, which has some people you may have heard of if you read fantasy and science fiction, like M.K. Jemisin, Neti Okorafor. But a lot of people who I'm looking up afterward to see what else they have written, because I've never heard of them and probably would not have read this book Maybe if Jordan Peele hadn't done this and posted it on his socials with Monkey Paw Productions, his film company. So I really love the fact that Jordan Peele has become (laughs) the public intellectual whose first name is Jordan. (laughs) (laughs) So this week we are talking about a topic we've wanted to talk about for a while because it comes up again and again in philosophical circles, and that is trans philosophy. So, Lee, what are we talking about? Well, in recent years, I think we all know, society has witnessed a really seismic, significant shift in our understanding of gender. And for some, the binary notion of gender, once seen as immutable and fixed, has given way to a more inclusive and fluid understanding of identity, a transformation that has brought to the forefront the lived experiences of transgender individuals who have long grappled with issues of self-identity, social acceptance, and the philosophical underpinnings of gender itself. But for others, the emergence of trans issues and trans people has motivated a passionate and often violent kind of re-entrenchment. The refusal of trans recognition and trans rights for those on the political right is not just a matter of attitudinal disposition or theory, but actual legislation. Transgender individuals often find themselves at the intersection of various philosophical disciplines, from ethics to epistemology to metaphysics, and questions about the moral obligation society owes to its transgender members, the authenticity of one's gender identity, and the implications of gender fluidity for our understanding of reality 
are just a few areas in which trans philosophers have made really important contributions over the past several decades. But philosophy can also be blamed, or I guess credited, depending on your view, (laughs) with the rise and influence of trans-exclusionary radical feminists, or TERFs, whose rhetoric and views sharply divides not only philosophy Twitter, but the discipline itself. But discussions about trans philosophy extend way beyond academia and, of course, into the realm of social justice and activism. Trans issues encompass a wide range of concerns, including important ones like healthcare access, legal recognition, and the protection of civil and human rights. These practical considerations are deeply rooted in the philosophical discussions not only about sex and gender, but also about fairness, equality, and the social contract adding an urgent and concrete dimension to the work of people like our guest today, Talia Mae Betcher. So we're really happy to be joined by Talia, author of the 2019 essay, What is Trans Philosophy?, to explore the multifaceted world of transgender experience, identities, and the profound philosophical questions they raise. So Talia, as Jason mentioned, we've been wanting to do an episode on trans philosophy for a long time. We're really glad that you decided to join us. And we sort of chose your 2019 essay, What is Trans Philosophy, as a way to kind of ground this conversation. Although, of course, we're going to talk about a lot of things outside of that essay as well. But I want to give you a chance to just give us the general argument of that essay, and maybe we can follow up with some more specific questions that we have about it. For me, that essay was asking the question, what is it that we do when we do trans philosophy? Because it was only recently, let's say 2016, when there was more and more people practicing trans philosophy and also discussions about trans people in the profession of philosophy. Mm-hmm. And if I had to write that essay again, I would give a very simple definition of what trans philosophy is. It's philosophizing in resistance to trans oppression. Mm. And so the idea is that philosophy can be a resistant tool. And there's different ways of approaching philosophy. One way to approach philosophy is just zoom in and you take an issue and you focus on it and you think about it typical philosopher stuff. And in this view, philosophers challenge our everyday views about the world. In the view I'm thinking about, you come into it, you're already baffled, you're already confused, you're wondering what's going on as a trans person, and you're trying to figure it out. And so what you do is you use philosophy to try to make sense of your experience when there's sort of no common sense to be had to guide your way. Yeah, you know, your essay begins by discussing well, I guess the relative novelty, we could say, of trans philosophy in 2019. But in retrospect, I think we can all see now that you were really writing in the midst of a gathering storm. (laughs) And even in that essay, you note the significance of two rather explosive moments in professional academic philosophy. One, the controversy surrounding the feminist journal Hypatia's decision to publish Rebecca Tuvel's transracialism essay, which happened in 2017. And then second, the rise of, at that time, mostly UK-based anti-trans rhetoric on Twitter, especially that of Kathleen Stock in 2018. 
And you don't mention a third thing, but I want to kind of include this in it because I think it's implied, which is the mobilization of TERFs or trans-exclusive radical feminists as an online identity around which both vulgar transphobes and well-meaning gender-critical feminists rallied. All of those things kind of amplified the concerns of your essay at the time. I'm wondering if you could maybe speak to some of those events more specifically. Oh, wow. (laughs) Well, maybe I'll talk about the back and forth that I had with Kathleen Stock. Yeah. It wasn't something that I really wanted to do because I was busy working on my book. And I felt annoyed that I felt compelled to address this. Yeah. You know, sort of feeling this sense that, oh, well, I must put down what I'm doing now and prioritize this. And why should I have to prioritize this? This person has suddenly made it urgent for me to talk about something and to talk about something on their terms. Right. It's a big dilemma for me because on the one hand, you want to address their arguments. You want to talk to them, right? But as soon as you do, you've seeded terrain. Right. Right. As soon as someone says, like, you know, how often do you beat your wife? You've answered. <laughs> you've already conceded the terrain. Yeah. Right. You've entered into the conversation that doesn't give you the resources that you need. You know, so sometimes I think let's just not engage. Let's just leave it alone because it's giving them too much credence. But I felt at the time that I ought to do something. And the only reason I did was because I knew there were a lot of young trans philosophers in the profession. I just think that this contributed a hostile environment for them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I put aside the time to address the arguments that Stock was giving. But I was also very critical of the methodology because she presented herself as some sort of neutral philosopher come in to philosophize where there had never been any philosophizing (laughs) before. There had never been any clear-headed thinking, but now, thankfully, Kathleen Stock was coming to bring illumination, (laughs) right? And I felt a little bit slighted, personally, having been around thinking about this for a long time. It's like, hey, we've been here. Yeah, a lot of people have been thinking about this. So part of me was interested in just sort of addressing Stock's methodology, then addressing the actual content of what she was saying. So I kind of did both, but I really wanted to talk about the methodology and the approach to this. So I wrote this piece called When Tables Speak. The analogy was of trans people as tables. And the reason I say tables is because philosophers like to philosophize about things like even tables. <laughs> like, do tables exist or not, right? We'll do the composition problem. We're not quite sure what to say about that table. And it's a fascinating question. But there is this presumption that that's completely analogous to asking questions about a group of people, in this case trans. If you approach the topic as if they're exactly the same and completely fungible, you've already made a moral mistake in my view. Mm. So the question is, how is it that you approach talking about a minoritized group that you're now going to philosophize on in a way that is ethically responsible? Mm -hmm. My view is that In the case of Tuval, in the case of Stock, what's going on is not ethically responsible. In fact, one of the things that particularly annoyed me about Stock is I felt that this stance of neutrality and this stance of coming to bring illumination, I'm going to be neutral, I'm just going to come and bring the arguments, when I know that she had an agenda. Mm -hmm. You can see the agenda. So you can see the agenda, you can see the political move, and then you can see the denial and the attempt to cover that up by saying, oh, I'm I'm proceeding neutrally. 
And so, you know, I wrote this blog piece in response to one of the pieces that she had written on Medium, just to make these points and at least to have some response out there that could at least, I don't know, I think that sometimes this stuff doesn't persuade anyone, but at least have something positive out there for other trans and non-binary philosophers. We have a lot of listeners who aren't philosophers. Could we give some of the basic tenets of the position that Kathleen Stock was putting forward and then maybe describe what you found to be unethical and irresponsible about those positions? Well, first of all, let me say that what was unethical was the approach. The neutral approach. The pretense of neutrality. Mm. There was this presumption of fungibility between talking about a group of minoritized people and tables. Right. So when I talk about a lack of ethics, it's primarily methodological that I'm talking about. Okay. So it has to do with the way you approach it. I'm trying to recall what she had argued, but I think one had to do with arguing about what a woman was. Right. And so like this can become a philosophical question, as in what is a woman? And then I believe that when she gave her response, which I think was something like, you know, Alex Burns, an adult female human being, I, I can't recall. She then proceeded to raise worries about sex segregation in spaces like public restrooms, public changing rooms, and you can go on, prison segregation, that kind of thing. Worrying about trans women being in these private spaces with non-trans women, claiming that the position that she was adopting was a feminist position because she was attempting to protect non-trans women from these trans women being in the same spaces with them. Mm -hmm. Right. That was, I believe, the position. Lee, do you remember? Does that seem to get it right? Yeah, I think that that is largely the debate at the time. I suppose maybe one thing that I would want to add to that is this was, I mean, again, still at the kind of beginning of this discourse, at least on social media, but there was a forwarding of what now people are calling gender critical feminism mm -hmm. or trans exclusionary feminism. The idea that the life experiences, what we might call the arc of becoming a woman, is significantly different enough for non-trans women oh, that's to right. be noted. Now, of course, that notation in Stock's mind is trans women are not women, but that's one of the things that lent her argument a lot of credibility in a lot of people's minds because, you know, uh -huh. I think a lot of people do legitimately have that belief that the arc of personal development of a non-trans woman is significantly different than the arc of personal development of a trans woman. So. Right. I mean, and I think I don't want to make a generalization. I mean, a lot depends on the individual, but you know, there's a point to that. Mm -hmm. But the question is what you do with that and what it means. Right. Yeah. yeah. And this is an issue that is very, very old. It goes back to the beginning of second wave feminism. You know, so at first, the thought was, we're all feminists, we're all fighting for the same position, you know, the liberation of women. And this idea of lesbian separatism came out, you know, the, the way to break free of patriarchy is to love women and women only. Well, if you factor in race, this is going to be a terrible position. What, I'm supposed to abandon men who are subject to racism? Because we've decided to prioritize sexism above racism. You haven't even factored in this at all in your analysis because this is a <laughs> the lesbian separatist politic is one that is coming clearly then from a white perspective. So, mm -hmm. what does this mean? You're going to have different experiences as a woman depending upon what mm -hmm. your race is, right? 
Now, I don't, we can argue about whether or not those are like wider apart or, you know, compare it to the difference between trans and non-trans women. But then the question is what you do with it with your politic. What I think you ought to do with it is aim towards an intersectional approach, which thinks closely about ways in which those two forms of oppression are sometimes even integrated and function together. So you need to think about both of those things together. I mean, I'm being you know a little bit simple here, but just because there are different experiences doesn't necessarily mean that the politic needs to be antagonistic. Well, and even among people assigned female at birth, the experiences are significantly different from one another. And I think this Uh is what you're pointing out with intersectionality, so that the experience of women who were assigned female at birth who are white is a radically different one than people of color. So just to say that there's a significant difference does not then entail a normative, ethical, or political position at all. I'd also like to say what's shocking to me is, you know, when Kathleen Stock is saying this in, what was it, 2018, to act as if this is the first time any philosopher has asked the question, what is a woman? (laughs) Judith Butler publishes Gender Trouble in 1990. I mean, could you read a fucking book and see that even asking the question has already pointed out as having some problems that are important to discuss as problems? Certainly. And I think that the lack of having been well-read at all or versed in this stuff, you know, it was very disingenuous the way that she approached it. Mm -hmm. I want to go back to one of the things when we were talking about different experiences, because I do want to raise the point that there are also some Mm -hmm. similar experiences, Mm -hmm. right? So one of the things that became very clear to me when I transitioned, speaking personally as a white trans woman, was that the street at night became very different for me. Mm. The way I negotiated the street became very different. The way that men interacted with me became very different. And it didn't take long to figure that out. Right. It didn't take long for some guy to come up to me when I was philosophizing, walking down the street, told me to smile, I'd be prettier. Mm. So my point is that once you transition, you start to have some similar experiences, Right. for example, with sexual violence that are significant from a feminist perspective. So that's one point. And going back to the methodology, yes, Judith Butler, but the interesting thing is there was a whole movement, I didn't call it self-gender critical, but it was lesbian separatists going all the way back to, say, Janice Raymond's transsexual empire that was also anti-trans. One of the interesting things about those people, in my view, is that they were seriously feminist, at least. (laughs) And sometimes I'm worried that the so-called terse are, in fact, not feminists at all. If your feminism consists in excluding trans women from the bathroom, that's not a feminism. That's just transphobia. Mm-hmm. And, you know, any conservative person can sign on to that, too. Right. You know, so I do agree with uh, read a book. <laughs> <laughs> on the whole read a book point, I mean, I think that from what I understand, I haven't read more than a tweet from Kathleen Stock, but I did read the transracialism piece. And one of the responses was this person hasn't read the literature. They haven't read trans people. They haven't read stuff on race as well. And that's a very standard response. You know, we have this whole system of peer review, this like, if you write on something, expect someone to ask, well, have you read what other people have written about this thing? And the weird thing to me is that some of the response to some of these works was pretty much that. You haven't read the stuff. 
But the reaction to it was not, oh, okay, yes, I got to do my homework. It was, oh, I'm being policed. I'm being censored. You know, Kathleen Stockley left her job and joined this strip mall bogus university outside of Austin. That's all about free speech. You know, the sense of like... Wasn't the wrong Jordan associated with that as yes, well? Yes, the wrong Jordan. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> the, well, the wrong Jordan, the right Jordan. There are a parody of right and left Jordans. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Don't you think, though, when you hit your wagon to Jordan Peterson star, you got to take a long, hard look at your life? I think so. I would hope. But anyway, you were saying. I mean, I think it's worth pointing out that a rather standard academic response, you haven't read the literature, was treated as suppression, cancellation, et cetera, et cetera. And there's this huge disconnect between what was being said and how that was being received as if it was a question not of standard, have you done your research? It was more a question of like a fundamental freedom was being attacked. I do think that's interesting. In part, it's disingenuous as most of this is. Mm -hmm. But I think that also it plays into this idea of a conspiracy or this sense in which trans people have some sort of magical power to censor people and we're this like hegemonic <laughs> voice that needs to be subverted. Or, I mean, mm -hmm. you know, it's funny because trans people are so minoritized, right? Mm. so minoritized in the profession. I mean, even while meaning feminist philosophers were publishing things that were trans exclusionary, they weren't thinking about it. It wasn't like necessarily on purpose, but it did owe itself to a kind of cis privilege. Mm -hmm. And it was only very, very recently, like right around the time that Kathleen Stong wrote her thing, the trans philosophy was getting any credence at all. Mm -hmm, right. So somehow we're this huge political force that has dominated feminism for like the past 20 years and is forcing out voices. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I want to return to your statement earlier where you said if you were rewriting this essay today, you would have said that what trans philosophy is, is philosophizing against trans exclusion. I think that's a really helpful clarification and it reminds me a little bit of something that Charles Mills once said of both, I think, the philosophy of race and feminist philosophy, which is that we can't think of it as just add women and stir or just add trans people and stir kind of approach to philosophy. There, he was clearly correcting the mistake of what he would call ideal theorists. And I think what you were calling the neutral approach methodology, you know, sort of treating persons like tables or treating minoritized groups like tables. But how do you see the relationship between critical race theory, feminist philosophy, and trans philosophy? You know, I think it depends on who the philosopher is philosophizing, because they're going to have a different subject position with regard to it. You know, there's always a distortion when you have trans philosophy, feminist philosophy, black philosophy. There's an inherent distortion that is built into it, necessarily, because you're focusing on one mode of oppression and minimizing the other. And I think that's just the way it goes. We need to accept that flaw in our approach, but it means that we need to mitigate it. And presumably, it also means that we need to recognize that any one approach is inadequate. Mm. Trans philosophy is going to have its distortions and its limitations, and that's why you need a bigger picture. I mean, as we know, philosophers have conversations, and I think that conversations across different modes of oppression, philosophizing across multiple modes of oppression, is the best way to go on this. I want to push back a little bit on that claim that to approach a subject matter like race theory, feminist theory, or trans theory necessarily includes minimizing the other. 
identity categories. Because I'm inclined to say that you can talk about all three as oppositional discourses in a way, as opposing hegemonic power structures, etc. And in that way, it doesn't necessarily require minimizing the other ways in which power structures oppress in order to talk about one particular mode of the oppressive power. Why do you think that it does require? I mean, why did you say that? <laughs> why did I you say, say that? that because I don't think that they are discrete power structures. I think that they're integrated. And because I take an intersectional approach, and a better word is intermeshing, I think that all of these things are blended. And I think that if you take intersectionality seriously, you have to sort of come to the conclusion that there's going to be some distortion. So let's go back to lesbian separatism, right? Let's exclude men, we'll only have women. Now, it turns out these are white lesbian feminists who weren't thinking from the perspective of the women of color whose perspective was not being captured here. So just like think about this. First of all, there's going to be distinct modes of oppression that affect only people at the intersections. So only women of color may be subject to certain forms of oppression, which is going to require putting them together. Yeah. If you're just talking about sexism and you're leaving that out, you're leaving out an important part of sexism. But when you include it into sexism and you include race now, right, then you have to analyze the rest of the stuff in terms of racial privilege. Mm -hmm. And so now you have race and your feminism all the way through. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. I mean, maybe this is a ticky-tack point, but it's the minimizing. It's your characterization of it as a minimization that concerns me a little bit. All I mean, and I don't think that this should be that controversial, is that because of our subject positions and because of the choices that we make when we write political philosophy, that it's going to make fundamental exclusions or marginalizations of some sort or other. Okay, yeah. When you bear that in mind, it suggests that one have a little bit of humility in one's approach and recognize that one is doing something partial and have that be okay. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. Have that be okay. I mean, so long as there's an effort and also we have a larger project of folks talking to each other. I think it's just a very different way of thinking about philosophy where you don't think that you're ever, I mean, you're not going to get the big picture. You're not going to be able to come down and go like, this is the right perspective, right? I just think that it's clear when you're talking about political issues that that's just simply not the case. Yeah. No, that's fair. But let me follow Lee a little bit, because I'm thinking, of course, it is the case that the form of oppression a black woman might experience is different than the form of oppression that a white woman would experience. And I think perhaps we could generalize and say that racial oppression is different than gender oppression. And that each might require different tools of analysis. And I might even say different sorts of expertise that then clearly do need to come together in a political philosophy that is working toward, to borrow a page from Jason's book, toward solidarity rather than anti-solidarity. But still, we might want to think carefully through how is it that patriarchy operates? What sustains it? What are the structures of its application? And then think about racism, unless we're going to have an overarching form of oppression, which perhaps I'm happy with, namely something like capital. Capital is the main form at work here, and it operates in all these other forms of oppression. 
I mean, ultimately, I think if you provide an account of sexism and you try to do it just sort of, I'm just going to talk about sexism, I mean, you might come up with something. But the worry is that if you're coming at it from a privileged perspective, say a white perspective, then what you're talking about in terms of sexism is going to be distorted. Mm -hmm. Now, you make this choice about talking about either sexism or racism, but let's go back to the foundations of this country, which is predicated on slavery. The so-called masters could rape their female slaves. It's an expression of white supremacy and an expression of patria, and it's fused into one thing. And so you can't just go, oh, we're going to focus on sexism instead of racism, because that is both. So then if you take that seriously, I mean, you might talk about the general structures of rape and sexual violence, and that's an approach I think you could do. Right. But you need to mind the fact that this is going to be saturated with other domains of oppression. Mm -hmm. Well, I find really compelling your point that if I'm to lay bare the structures of, let's say, sexism, to use the example you used, that if I don't do this in an intersectional way, then I'm laying bare the structures of sexism for privileged women like me, rather than structures of sexism in general. You know, one of the things I like about your essay, Talia, is that you talk about this fundamental different orientation that trans philosophy begins with the WTF question. This very kind of almost Socratic idea of philosophy, like unpacking your assumptions, that's what philosophy does. And you point out that for some people, that speculative, like, what do we really mean by justice is not really the question. The question is much more imperative, like, why do people want to kill me? Mm. And I wonder if in thinking about that, do we have a way of thinking that there are other philosophies that begin with the WTF? It seems to be like other philosophies that focus on forms of oppression. They're not just sort of speculating about the world. There's an active moment of struggle. I guess I'm wondering if we can think of family resemblances around philosophies that are conjoined by beginning from a point of oppression, and if that makes it possible to think of intersections and articulations around that. Oh, for sure. I agree with that totally. That's why I kind of speak of groundbound philosophy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's what I mean by it. A philosophy that is in the service of resistance. And I can speak certainly to my experiences of sexism and of transphobia. Both raise this question, what the fuck? Mm-hmm. What the fuck is going on? Mm-hmm. But you're definitely right, Jason. I think that in general, if you're struggling with various forms of oppression, the what the fuck is going to arise for you. And I do see groundbound philosophy proceeding from that place. That's why I really like your advice in the article that philosophers really just got to get out of their houses more often. <laughs> yeah. Did you know that Hotel Bar Podcast is more than just a podcast? We are a fully online, cross brand synergy platform of content creation. Actually, that's not true. Those words are meaningless. But you can follow us on the app formerly known as Twitter at Hotel Bar Podcast. There you can find the handles of all the co-hosts as well. You can follow us all or pick your favorite. If by the time you hear this, Elon Musk has burned down the servers to collect the insurance, you can also find us on Facebook or YouTube. Just look for Hotel Bar Sessions. Wherever you find us on social media, you can contact us with ideas, complaints, and questions. You can also email us anytime at hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com or visit our interactive page at hotelbarpodcast.com. No matter how you get in contact with us, we're always glad to hear from you.
Talia, I've been teaching Judith Butler's Gender Trouble just very recently. And as all of us here know, but just to lay it out for those who might not, one of the main positions that they put forward in Gender Trouble is that gender is performative. That is, if you ask me what is gender, there's not a there there. There was a notion that sex is biological and gender would be the cultural expression of this biological notion of sex. And through a critique of both of those, Judith Butler arrives at this notion of performative. I think many people who teach this text to undergraduates struggle with the fact that then students immediately say, well, then what, people just choose it? And so I don't know what you think about Butler's position in Gender Trouble. If you do think gender is performative, then how could one maintain on the one hand that it's performative and on the other hand, it's not chosen? This is a really good question. And sort of ironically, I'm going to be teaching Butler and trans responses to Butler in my class later on today. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) I myself find Butler to be a brilliant philosopher I know that they have had a lot of criticism from various different sources, but I believe they will have the last laugh. (laughs) I think they're very profound. You need to think about our sense of who we are as, in a sense, not prior to these various different performatives, but it's the consequence of those things. It kind of sits on top of it, metaphorically. And so from that perspective, it's not going to be like something you made up because it's going to be built into your very sense of who you are. Mm. You know, for me, Butler's position is a very good queer politic, but it adopts a particular mode of analyzing, I guess they use the expression subversion in this case, rather than resistance, where we think of a queer response to a heterosexist hegemony by, as it were, parodying it or making fun of it, right, by exposing its imitative performative quality. You then have this problem about the trans person who wants to play it straight, who from Butler's position wouldn't be in on the joke and be saying, no, I'm really a woman or no, I'm really a man. You know, superficially, what's going to end up happening is that person, in Butler's view, is going to end up kind of being a dupe of gender, having misread what's going on and possibly supporting things that they shouldn't be supporting. In my mind, the problem is that we haven't gotten an account of trans oppression We've gotten an account of queer oppression, Mm. and you need a different theory to be able to understand that. Particularly, you need my theory. (laughs) 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 Plug. (laughs) I want to ask you a question that I am going to almost certainly regret the way that I phrase it, because I still haven't quite figured out a way to say this that doesn't get me in trouble. Whoa, that was a setup. (laughs) But I think that prior to the emergence of TERFs as a category of person and their own self-description of themselves as gender-critical feminists, I would have called myself a gender-critical feminist. And what I would have meant by that is that I don't think that gender is essential. I don't think that it's an expression of something necessary or natural or caused by biology or anything like that, that it is a performance. And for that reason, that I would be critical of any claim that I am a real woman or that somebody else is not a real woman. 
Of course, you can't now call yourself a gender-critical feminist because that just becomes like a synonym for turf. So I wanted, one, to ask you whether or not you think that someone could be gender-critical and not be trans-exclusionary. But actually, let me ask you that first, because I have an example that I want to use after. I think that one could be critical of prominent trans theories that are floating around or trans politics that might be troublesome from a feminist perspective. Mm -hmm. I think that's completely valid. And I think as well, feminists from within trans community ought to make those critiques themselves. So for instance, this thought that I was born female, I am naturally a woman, it's flowing from some sort of inborn essence is something I reject wholly. Same. And, you know, that gets me into trouble with some folks who think that it's important to make the claim that you were born this way. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't see how one commits to a feminism that sort of gives up one is not born a woman. Mm -hmm. There is a difference between a non-trans woman who goes, oh, I'm a natural woman, right? And it flows from me. It's just part of who I am. And a trans woman saying, and I think there's a difference. The trans woman is saying it partly in response or in resistance to oppression that invalidates her. Mm. And I'm worried that what happens is when you pick on trans women for doing that, you engage in what you might call selective targeting. Mm -hmm. Most people believe that they were born male or female. Why are we picking on the trans person? And when we do pick on the trans person, we're erasing the transphobia to which they're responding. Right. In that sense, it reminds me a bit of Spivak's notion of strategic essentialism. Exactly right. Exactly right. Just yes. to explain, I could be critical of something like gender being essential, and yet for political organization and mobilization, strategically, I might have to say, calling all women mm -hmm. and act as if that is yeah, something exactly. essential. I think that's right. So let's talk about pronouns for a second. because You were going to give me a hard question. I want to know the well, hard Well, this question. is it. <laughs> I don't know if it's a hard question, but it's a, okay. it's a tough situation. So let's talk about pronouns because next to bathrooms, that's the second most important thing to people out there. One of the things that's happened in classrooms, for example, across the country in the last five to 10 years is that people have implemented policies of asking their students what their pronouns are on the first day of class. I can completely understand the argument for this. I think that you want to give people an opportunity to not be misgendered, to identify themselves, how they want to be identified, all of those things. Nevertheless, as somebody who is, as I said before, critical of gender, I am resistant to this practice, and I'll tell you why. I don't think that I want to force my students to pick a gender on the first day of class. I think a lot of them may not know who they are, or for all I know, may change in the middle of the semester. I feel the same way about name tags. This is another thing that's happened relatively recently is that people at conferences will say, put your pronouns on your name tag. I mean, if I were at a conference and someone asked me to do that, I would much prefer just to leave it blank. I don't have a particular investment like other people rightly do in the pronouns that I'm called by, but I do have an investment in not being invested in pronouns. Again, not saying that everyone has to be not invested in pronouns, but I think I have good philosophical reasons for not being invested in them. So that's where, just in my practical life, my practical political and social life, the struggle between being gender critical and not being a turf, kind of, that's where the rubber meets the road. First of all, handling pronouns for people, there's almost like no good way to do it. But I agree with you that if you go through your class and have everyone self-declare that it's forcing them, 
and it may put people on the spot in ways they don't want to be. One of the things that we have on our roster is if a student wants to put in their pronoun, they can, and it will show up on your roster. And so you know that they're using they, which is usually the issue, right? Right. And then you can pay attention to that without that having to be self-declared. I've only sometimes had students declare their pronouns at the beginning, and I found it very awkward and uncomfortable, and I just generally don't do it anymore. Those are tricky issues. But I kind of agree with you in large on that. When it comes to pronouns, this might get me into some hot water. I don't know. I sometimes think there's way too much emphasis on pronouns, like that's the most important thing for trans people. Mm -hmm. And for many of us, it's not the most important thing. For me, it involved, you know, more than changing my pronoun, Mm. right? It involved changing how I present myself to the world, how I engage with the world, how I relate to people. Quite a lot of changes. Yeah. And those changes were not phenomenal. Those were other things. And I think that when we confront oppression, it's not just about a pronoun, it's about someone getting beat up or murdered because of who they are. If you think about this idea of trans people being deceivers or pretending, that has a lot to do with gender presentation and presumed genitalia has nothing to do with pronouns. Right. And so I sometimes worry that the significance of trans oppression and non-binary oppression is being deflated and minimized by being turned into a pronoun game and even a category game. Mm. So I guess like by gender, crit- I mean, I think we should always be critical. We should be critical of trans politics. We should be critical of what the leading zeitgeist is. I am. I'm a philosopher. I mean, that's my job to be critical. Right. My issue with pronouns in the classroom is I never use third-person pronouns ever in the classroom. Right. I always say <laughs> I or I say you. I never say to a student, what do you think about what he or she said? I just discovered how little I use third-person pronouns. And luckily, the second-person pronoun is gender neutral. You. Well, uh, I often find in the classroom that when students use third-person pronouns to refer to what someone else in the class has said, I find that very impolite. Mm-hmm. Like when he said black blah, blah, blah. It just seems weird. And I would much rather have them use a name there. You know, what Jim said. But it's because they don't know their name. Exactly. And so when someone uses a third person pronoun, I often say, oh, you might not be aware, but his name is Jim or Mm -hmm. whatever. I won't even say his. Their name is Jim. But I find the third person pronoun very off-putting in a lot of situations. That's interesting. I mean, I guess I'm the outlier here because I use third person pronouns all the time. I will frequently use a student in the class in an example that I'm telling. And I'll say, you know, Talia and I were walking down the street and she said this to me and then I said this to her. And so, yeah, I do use pronouns all the time and I don't find third person pronouns off-putting. I mean, the classroom is not where the pronoun debate is happening. It's not where it's the most contested. It's the most contested out in the street where people feel offended by being corrected on their pronoun usage. You know, and I think that's also a tough issue to deal with because on the one hand, part of me wants to say like, what the hell does it matter? Just call people where they want to be called. It doesn't matter. But I also don't want to be hand-waving about it. If it's important to somebody, it's important to somebody. You know, you don't want to just be like, who cares? But there is a sense of that. Like, why does this matter so much to you? Why do you care? For me, it's a who cares question. Why do you care so much about this? Yeah. I mean, it's not maybe about the person to whom it is important, but what is your vested interest in calling this person by a pronoun they don't want to be called? Right. Mm -hmm. Sometimes there's this, you know, white grievance. Well, why can't I say the (laughs) N-word? Because you can't. (laughs) (laughs) Why is it so fucking important that you say that? That's an interesting question, right? And people represent this as if they're being oppressed 
But really, the only thing that's going on is someone is making an ethical claim, like, you're an asshole if you do this. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, you're not free from ethical consequences. I'm sorry. If you go ahead and you misgender someone, even though it's no big to you, you're behaving in what looks like to me an unethical way. And if I point this out to you, I'm not forcing you. I have, there's no legislation that forces you to do this. But you don't get freedom from being called an asshole. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, get out of asshole jail free. <laughs> yeah. What did you mean, Lee, by gender critical? I mean, I think that in the most general terms, I simply mean that I don't think of gender as an essential category. I think of it as a symptom of other things. And so I don't tend to talk about gender as real or as naturally or causally connected to sex. Like, I'm critical of that notion of gender, you know. I went to undergraduate school in the 90s. I was massively influenced by gender trouble. So mm. I think that that is a gender critical text. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Well, that makes me gender critical as well. But you know now that in the profession, if you describe yourself as gender critical, what is heard is that means turf. I know. Because what they're saying is that the whole concept of gender that was developed is committing atrocities in patriarchy. And really, we just need to focus on sex and sexism. Mm-hmm. But the funny thing is, you can do a chance politic without using the word gender at all. Mm. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So like, I always thought it would be funny to shift to that. No, we're not using the word gender anymore. What's your problem? (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. But of course, as is true in every group, I mean, that's not some kind of hegemonic position on the part of trans people either. I mean, there are trans people for whom gender is very important and pronouns are very important. And the born this way discourse is very true. For sure. And that's the case for a lot of people, even those who aren't trans. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. the hotel bar, Rick, Jason, and I like to pour philosophy straight into your ears. We're an independent and ad-free podcast, and we'd like to keep it that way. But the only way we can do that is with listener support. You can help us defray some of our production costs by signing up to support us on Patreon at patreon.com backslash hotel bar sessions. There are several levels of monthly donations there that you can sign up for, and every one of them helps us keep raising our glasses to deep conversations. If you'd prefer to make a one-time donation or several one-time donations, just visit our website at hotelbarpodcast.com where you can find links to support the podcast through Venmo, PayPal, or Cash App, and you can keep enjoying our tipsy philosophy and sobering insights. So, Talia, since you wrote this essay, things have gotten a lot uglier and more violent and more deadly for trans people. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that the political right in the U.S. is currently engaged in what I think is really a long game of passing more and more aggressively anti-trans legislation at the state level with a hope that it will be challenged all the way up to the Supreme Court. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about this spate of recent anti-trans legislation and what you see coming in this battle. 
First of all, I'm terrified. Yeah. If yeah. someone like Trump becomes president, I'm glad that I'm Canadian and I will really, really, I think at that point need to leave the country. Mm. You know, I'm worried for all of those people who can't. Well, you're also Californian. I mean, if you were in Tennessee <laughs> right now, I think you'd already have left the country. Oh, yeah. No, there have been people that have reached out to me like, I need help to get out of the state. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To me, yeah. it's like you just cannot separate the trans agenda from, you know, the overturned Wade, mm-hmm. the overturned Roe v. Wade. And the fact fact of the matter is they're going to go after Griswold. I mean, they're going to go after the right to privacy. Yep. Do you honestly think that they're going to stop it? Because they really don't give a damn about the right to life. Is it plain? They're going to go after immigration. They're going to use laws to prevent black folks from voting. I mean, they're going to continue this process down the line. And so the fact of the matter is, yes, these trans issues are important, but it's part of a larger picture. Mm-hmm. And we're all in it. If you care about a woman's right to autonomy of her own body, you should care about trans issues. You should care about immigration issues. And you should care about racism and the supporting of racism in this country. You should worry about law enforcement. And I think beyond the legislative aspect, you know, Alexandra Mina Stern in their book, Proud Boys in the White Ethnostate, make this argument that I think is really important that anti-trans, especially online, is often a gateway into fascism, really, because it begins with this idea about like, oh, these people are overstepping the boundaries of nature and so on. And then the next natural boundary and hierarchy they're interested in preserving is the racial one. And this is why I think going back to the situatedness you're drawing our attention to, people who think they can be on the left and have questions about trans, I think are fundamentally misreading the situation because you have to be opposed to fascists. That's fundamental to being on the left. And you have to understand that you might not have picked this to be the, the terrain, but I do think that it is anti-trans issues that have become the point of the spear of fascist politics, both legislatively and a fascist common sense about hierarchies and authority in day-to-day life. And if you don't see that, then I really question your ability to make sense of anything politically. I agree with you. I mean, to me, it's a strategy, and it's partly a strategy of diversion. Mm-hmm. And you always go for the low-hanging fruit. Right now, trans people are the low-hanging fruit. Where other people the low-hanging fruit, you go for that. And what you do is you get people all riled up about that. You get them all angry, and you give them something to fight about. But you're just firing up your base. You're throwing them red red meat to, like, one, get them excited for the election. And then, two, you get everyone talking about this issue so that you're not focusing on other things you ought to be focusing. Yeah, preach on that. Um, Sometimes... Not sometimes. I'm often shocked that the focus of all of this anti-trans vitriol is either, like, really trivial things, you know, bathrooms, sports, drag shows, or totally fabricated things, like... I don't know, seventh graders that want to poop in a litter box at school or something, you know, or, you know, these creditor grooming, whatever kind of narratives. I don't know how this discourse is so compelling to so many people, but I think you're right. It's a diversion to get them fired up so that whenever you sort of ring the bell on any other issue, the standing guard is ready. Exactly. And then we're not focusing on the issues like, I can't remember if it was Rick or Jason, but like, you know, we don't focus on issues of class. Right. You know, the way that wealth is being distributed is like a huge issue. And it could actually be a point of commonality for many folks. For sure. You don't want that to happen. Well, that's what I was going to say. I mean, I think it has two main effects. One is that it gets people to focus on abortion or trans issues rather than the misery that they're actually living in their lives and working to do something about that. And secondly, 
it prevents solidarity among people who would otherwise have solidarity. So now we could all get excited about trans people who we should be in solidarity with because in a certain sense, we're all fucked by the same system. Exactly. Agree totally. It's also amazing to me how much of the internal contradictions that these people can overlook. And here in Tennessee, our state legislature passed a law outlawing drag shows. And one really hilarious thing that Equal Rights Watch in Nashville did was they dug up these old photos of the governor who, like most white men in college, was in a drag show in his fraternity or something, and they just keep putting up these billboards all around, oh, all yeah, around <laughs> Nashville with this photo of the governor in drag. That's really funny. <laughs> so, Talia, if I could ask you a kind of closing question, it would be something like this. Well, two questions. First, what can philosophers do to help our fellow trans philosophers within the discipline and within the academy in general? And second... What can everyone do to help protect the lives and interests of trans people? Well, that's a big question. I don't think I'll answer it very well. But I mean, I think that certainly within philosophy, speaking out against transphobia when you see it, this is a little bit tricky sometimes given the way that some trans politics goes. But if you're doing gender studies or feminist studies and say like Alex Byrne or something comes on the scene and does this article, there's a kind of discourse that is really distracting for trans philosophers to have to engage in because it's the same fucking question you've been dealing with for like 20 years. You know, take up that burden so that we don't have to. So we can do the deep philosophy that I think would be helpful for trans people. You know, for the person out there in the world, if you don't know that much about trans issues, you know, probably learn about them and speak up for trans people. I mean, like, you really don't have to do much if you don't know any trans people, but I think you should know trans people. You should make friends with trans people so that there's a kind of humanizing Mm -hmm. that goes on. I think also recognizing perhaps, maybe this is the most important, that maybe your own issues are connected to trans issues. Yeah, and people need to remember that that kind of work takes place at a lot of places. I mean, not just town hall meetings or the school board meetings, but, you know, at your churches, at your bars, Mm -hmm. in your neighborhood. Applebee's. Applebee's. (laughs) (laughs) I say that as someone who has never once been in an Applebee's. That's always like a good Applebee's joke. (laughs) Well, we've just got last call issued, so we're going to have to skedaddle out of here. But Talia, we really want to thank you for coming. This has been a great conversation. Yeah. And you know, this is not to throw other guests under the bus, but I think you hit our vibe really well, namely that we can talk serious philosophy without using a whole lot of jargon. And so I think this has been a really great conversation about issues related to trans philosophy. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, you're a real gift to the profession. It's obvious you've been out of your house. (laughs) (laughs) Well, hell yeah. (laughs) Well, she's sitting here in the bar with us, Lee, so... Exactly. No, I get around. I've been around. (laughs) Seriously, though, thanks for joining us. (laughs) Thank you very much. Yeah, Good night, y'all. Good night. Good night, everybody. Good night.